The Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. I'm Kate Setter, your host for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Today we're going to be talking about sports concussions for kids and adolescents. And joining me for this conversation are Dr. Kate Burrs. Thanks for being here, Dr. Burrs. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Dr. Paul Gabanich. Thanks for being here, Dr. Gabanich. Pleasure. And they have joined us because they are pediatric sports medicine experts and they see a whole lot of concussions. So we've asked them to share with us today what they know. And where I'd love to start this conversation is just with a definition of what is a concussion and how common are they for kids. Dr. Gabbana, do you want to start on this one? Absolutely. So concussions are really metabolic injuries to the brain. So even though the skull protects the outside, it doesn't protect your brain from being shaken or jostled. That can occur from sports activity, a fall, a car accident, or anything that causes a sudden change in motion to the, to the head or body by a direct or indirect blow. Concussions are fairly common. The CDC estimates that there are approximately 4 million concussions that occur in the United States each year, with sports in young folks probably being one of the more common causes, but falls being actually the number one in young folks. So we wanted to do this episode after last fall when in the NFL we saw several concussions and head injury kind of scenarios play out with with NFL players um, with huge audiences in front of, you know, tons of people. And even some instances where it seemed like, um, like players were getting back to the sport really, really quickly. Um, so I, I'm assuming that football is one of the sports that leads to concussions in kids. Um, are, what are some of the others and what should parents be thinking about when they're kind of deciding what sports their kids are going to play. We see a lot of concussions from football, but we also see a lot of concussions from soccer. And girls' soccer is actually the number one sport where girls get concussions. One thing I want to emphasize from what Dr. Gabonich said was that a concussion does not have to be a hit to the head. It can be a blow to the body that rattles the brain around in the skull. And we'll see kids in clinic there where the parents will say, well, they really didn't get hit in the head. So how can this be a concussion? And then we can do some education about it's not just a blow to the head. It can be a blow to the body as well. I also want to hear Dr. Gabonich's take on this because he was actually an NFL team physician. So he will have a good insight on this injury in the NFL. This is something I didn't know about you, Dr. Gabonich. Yes, well, um, to Kate's point that um, people recover from concussions differently, uh, different rates, um, and young folks generally take longer as opposed to other injuries uh, we see in young athletes that actually recover more quickly. So, so concussions, one of those where that's a little bit reversed. Um, about 70% of children and adolescents recover within the first month, about 90% within the first three months. We also, based on higher level adult athletes, know that their, rec- 
to get to that level, they probably have something unique about them that makes them a little bit more resistant to concussion uh, because they've played all those years of that sport where, you know, if they've had a lot of concussions, they may not have progressed to that level to begin with. So it's a slightly different population. Um, and again, being an adult population, their recovery curves look generally different th and may recover within a week or less than we would expect to see in our younger athletes that may take a month or longer to fully recover. Oh, interesting. So you're saying that with the, the professional athletes where we saw kind of those scenarios play out last year, um, recovery within a week is possible where it isn't with a child. An, an uncomplicated injury uh, with few risk factors like no history of previous concussions, no other underlying you know, medical problems certainly can recover in a week or less in some folks. Um, and it's really, some of it's related to their symptom burden too. There's no one test that uh, tells us how much or how big that injury is um, in terms of brain injury during a concussion. So in cardiology, you know, if someone has a heart problem or heart attack, right, they can measure the enzymes and, and get an idea of how many heart cells were injured. We don't have that ability to do that for a concussion. So these are all lumped together. And the best way we know of how severe that injury is, is how long it takes someone to recover. So we don't have a way to quantify the number of cells that are injured during a concussion. Super interesting. And so we talked about football and soccer are sports where we see concussions. Are there any more that are kind of known culprits? I would say that contact collision sports in general are going to be higher risk. So we see this, you know, in ice hockey, you know, we see this in wrestling, uh, we see this in men's lacrosse. Um, but generally speaking, and, you know, contact collisions, and a lot of people don't realize that basketball is considered a contact collision sport as well. So it sounds like a lot of fall sports and a couple in their spring and winter. Um, is this typically something that, because we're heading into the fall season, and that's when listeners will hear this, um, is that typically a pretty busy time for concussions for your team? That is probably when we see the most concussions. And I think there are two reasons for that. One is kids are getting back into the contact collision sports like soccer and football and they're starting school. And a concussion might happen during the summer, but may not get recognized because the kid is not on a schedule where they have to use their brain a lot. And so um, they're able to rest, they're able to recover from that concussion maybe a little bit quicker. Um, I always say to trainees and families, concussions seem to take longer to recover during the school year. And I think that's because of the amount of cognitive work that they have to do. Um, and there's probably some stress that goes along with that, too. So what role should coaches be playing in identifying concussion symptoms for kids when they're in a season? Great question. And I think as we've learned over the past 20 years that the more people that are involved in trying to keep our athletes safe, the safer that they'll be. So coaches have the responsibility. So if they suspect or identify a concussion to remove the athlete immediately and then have them evaluated. And that may be with someone on site, like an athletic trainer. It may be that they need to follow up with someone um, 
else, like the primary care physician um, as well. So there are most leagues now are incorporating some type of training or certifications or, you know, even in their rules and bylaws about res- the coaches having a responsibility. The referees do as well in the state of Ohio. So um, they have a responsibility if they recognize a concussion to remove that athlete to keep them safe. And then they need to get evaluated before they're allowed to be considered to return back to play. We have a saying in sports medicine as a sideline physician, and we teach this to all our trainees and athletic trainers that we work with, when in doubt, sit them out. So mm-hmm. if there is a kid that you know, gets a blow to the head or the body, may feel off, may have a headache, may not look right, mm-hmm. they should really sit out the rest of the game. And uh, to caveat on that, um, symptoms are not always immediately apparent. Um, mm-hmm. So we, if an athlete has symptoms or is staggering or you know has something immediate, those are the easy cases um, because yes, that's considered a concussion until proven otherwise and mm-hmm. you know, they should be removed. But even after large blows, um, you know, those symptoms can creep up on folks, you know, minutes or hours or even days afterwards. And so uh, there's not one test that tells us when someone's had a concussion. And so it's this, you know, direct observation over time um, that's really important. So I witnessed something um, during my son's baseball season this year where um, a coach sat a kid out after he'd been um, hit in the head with a baseball. He was batting and had his helmet on. They checked him, and coach decided to sit him. And his parents were yelling from the side, put him in, he's fine. If we reach parents who are the put him in, he's fine kind of parents, what would you say to them? You know, parents that uh, that say that are, you know, we, we always have to remind ourselves they're coming from a good place. They want their kids to play. They want, you know, everybody wants the best for their children. And sometimes they need someone like the athletic trainer or a doctor or someone to say. And so the, the, and the reason I'm saying this is because I don't want people to be afraid to say, hey, to your friend even, hey, you know, elbow them a little bit and say, uh, you know, that it probably needs to sit out. They'll probably be okay. You know, they're nine years old. he'll have a chance, you know, to play later on. But in the moment, it is, you know, it is, it's hard. And so um, I would say to that parent, and and I I will say this to families in the room, and I'll I'll direct this towards the kid to say, you know, hey, your job is to want to play the next inning or to play the next play. Our job as parents and and coaches and doctors is to to say like, hey, there's something after this. There's something beyond this game right here. And so let's you know let's rest so you can get back to the next game. And and so what I would say to those parents is that there's really good evidence that removing a child from play um, will speed their recovery, even if they do not get another blow to the head or body during that game. If you sustain a concussion, a child sustains a concussion in a game and then continues in that game, their recovery has proven to be longer than if they are pulled out right away. So that's my that might be what mm-hmm. I would say to that parent. Yeah, I, I would agree. I think that's really one of the messages is, you know, so we have the same interest that you have, but we want your, you know, athletes to be able to play safely. And, you know, this is where having a structured medical team engaged with the coaching staff and knowing, you know, being able to predict some of these scenarios um, that there's a plan on how to handle these type of situations. Um, 
and knowing that we're all working in this together. But ultimately, you know, looking at the risks and benefits, if someone is held out because they could have had a concussion and they end up not having to have one, then our, we get them back as quickly as we can back to play at some point. But knowing that they're going to be safer doing that than if we miss a concussion, they continue to play with it, then those are the folks that go on to have a longer recovery or maybe even more longer-term concerns that may keep them out of the sport that they're trying to play. So, so we're kind of the you know less... Um, um, emotional, um, less involved from that standpoint in terms of, you know, being able to look at this objectively and helping to you know, shed light on those risks and benefits. And I, I like how you pointed out that we have rules for that because, so, you know, let us be the bad guy. And I'll often mm-hmm. say that to families too, is, mm-hmm. hey, you know, t- tell your friends, tell your coaches, you know, it's that mean doctor that won't let me play. And we are totally, we're fine being the bad guy. So speaking of, um, how the doctor plays in these scenarios. When should a parent take a young athlete um, to have a follow-up check with um, with either a sports medicine doctor like yourselves or with their pediatrician? When should they go and who's the right person to see? So the it, it is never wrong to start with the primary care physician. And um, you know, if there has been a worry of a head injury, so there may be that situation where the kid got hit in, in a tackle or headed the soccer ball wrong and felt a little bit off. Um, I should say that heading a soccer ball does not cause a concussion as a general rule. So, uh, but I have had kids that have come to me to ask that question. Um, so if a kid has had an injury, um, not feeling right, had, you know, worry about concussion, it is never wrong to start with a primary care physician. Um, the, this is a concussion is definitely something that a primary care can, primary care physician can deal with. Um, and then if this seems like something that might need a little bit more time, a little bit more education, a little bit more support, then uh, that's where the sports medicine specialist comes in to help guide those return to play instructions and, um, and help with uh, any symptom management. And to add to that, um, so at Cincinnati Children's here, we have actually developed a a brain health and wellness center. So we do see patients of all severities of concussion across the spectrum. um, And we have an integrated medical treatment model for those different severities with different specialties. Um, The brain health and wellness center um, is open to, you know, anyone. they can be scheduled directly by the patient or their family, or we certainly see referrals from primary care physicians. And as Kate mentioned, you know, either starting point's okay. Uh, but we also addressed, you know, the questions about symptom management and how to recover from that. But the other big ones that come up are about school and academic progressions. So when's the right time to go to school or how much, or how do you, you know, I would say wean into that or, or how do, how do you man, manage that? And same thing with return to sports. So those are the real other big questions. When are you ready to go back? What's the risk? You know, what's the risk benefits of that, you know, based on other, you know, the recovery curve, their symptoms, their age, some of their overall sports goals as well. So each athlete is able to get that advice done on an individual level. So Paul works in the Advanced Brain Health and Wellness Clinic where he sees some of the concussions that are a little bit more complicated. And uh, I, as a sports medicine uh, doctor, uh, sometimes will send patients to him with prolonged concussion recovery. And what I appreciate most about that 
visit is that you see a physician, you see a a school psycho- a psychologist, and then you see a school interventionist. So it really think it's helpful for communicating with the school when a child is having a lot of time, a lot of um, uh, needs a lot of help with school after their concussion. So I'd actually love to dig into that a little bit more. So when we're talking about resting after concussion, it sounds like it needs to be both physical rest and brain rest, and then like the the school component of that. Um, why is it that like that rest needs to happen? So we used to tell kids after a concussion or any patient after a concussion to go sit in a dark room until you feel better. And we all know that uh, if you sit around for a while and don't do anything, don't see people, don't move, you're gonna feel terrible. And so the current recommendations are you know, 24 to 48 hours of rest after a concussion. So that's, you know, I always tell families, like, treat it like a sick day. Mm-hmm. You know, just, don't, you know, don't do too much. Get get enough sleep. Eat good food. You know, drink, drink a lot of water. And then uh, when you're feeling a little bit better, start a little bit of activity, uh, physical and cognitive, and increase that over a few days. Um, and pacing is the most important thing in the concussion recovery. And so what pacing is, is you know just doing a little bit at a time and then resting, and doing a little bit at a time and then resting. And we talk about uh, physical rest and cognitive rest. So you know, as Paul said uh, at the very beginning, a concussion is a metabolic injury to the brain. And so those brain cells are, uh, your brain is working very hard to heal. And so there is an energy crisis there. And so your brain doesn't have a lot of energy and a lot of capacity to do all of the things that you want to do, like math and science and soccer practice. And so it's important to uh, rest so that you can uh, help your brain as much as possible in that recovery. Exactly. The purpose of the rest is to help resolve that energy crisis, which you know, will make progress over time. But it's that blood flow mismatch with what the cells demand and what they're getting because they get constriction and less blood flow after a concussion. And so when you're thinking more, when you're processing more information and extra stimuli, when you're visually looking at different objects on screens and tablets, it's making your brain work harder. When you're physically active, you're shunting blood away from the brain. So again, you're making those energy crises worse, which can again provoke some of those symptoms. So we don't, again, want to hold people back too long. So as they start to feel better, we want to normalize that, but we want to do it in a way where we're not spiking symptoms because if we keep pushing through that energy crisis, it's going to slow down that progression and recovery. So it's kind of like there's a finite amount of energy. And if you don't use it doing all of the other things, then it gives your brain more energy to recover. Did I get that at least close to right? So one of the, I would say, comments we always make in clinic, you know, is there's only so much gas in the tank, right? And, mm-hmm. and you need some of that gas just to perform your routine daily activities. And then as you start to feel better, you know, we start to prioritize, like, where can, can we spend that extra energy? But knowing if we spend way too much energy and we run out of gas, then we're not going to have, you know, the gas and the energy we need to do the other things that we want to get to. So whether that's school, whether that's, you know, things at home or, you know, physical activity. And so that's that pacing concept is, Mm -hmm. you know, gradual normalization of various activities um, based on on how they're doing clinically. And sometimes that could be over a day or two or a week, or sometimes it's several weeks or longer, and everyone's a little different. And so, you know, kind of monitoring that over time is, is one of the things that we do. 
I like that gas tank analogy. That's a good one. Thank you. We touched on it a little bit earlier, talking about having a second concussion or a second um, blow to the head or body shortly after a previous one. Um, what is that and why is it worrisome? For several reasons. Um, so there are, first of all, once you've had a concussion, lifelong, you're probably about four to five times higher risk of having another concussion at some point within your life or sports career. So, so you're at an elevated risk uh, just off the bat. If you've had a recent concussion, though, that risk is probably more acutely higher than that. We know that, you know, athletes that go back to that same sport the same season are probably about a three to five times higher risk going back to a contact collision sport if they return within the first few months. Um, And that risk may even last um, up to a year or so um, before it starts to approach that baseline. So there's the timing of some of those injuries. So even if you were fully recovered um, and have another injury in the short term. Uh, we do know that athletes that have that they're more vulnerable to these injuries then after that concussion. So if they're not fully recovered and they do have another head injury, that they w- likely will have another injury that has a, a worse prognosis, longer recovery. The more catastrophic concern is that there's a, a condition called second impact syndrome. So it occurs in, in teens. Um, that essentially have had a concussion that are still symptomatic that suffer a new injury where they get this massive auto dysregulation, which leads to a catastrophic brain injury or potentially even death. So it's pretty rare, um, but obviously a a huge significant concern and one that uh, does not, you know, support the risk of, of going back and returning to play while still symptomatic. You use the word auto dysregulation. Will you break that down for us a little bit? Basically, that um, the body systems have difficulty controlling, and you get swelling in the brain, which causes the brain to not fit with inside the skull, and the brain starts to uh, get pushed uh, down further in the brain stem. So, as you can imagine, that doesn't sound very good, um, and it's one that can cause, you know, lifelong altering, you know, problems um, or catastrophic injury. So, when a doctor tells an athlete to rest until you're fully recovered. It really is that important. Absolutely. I tell them that, you know, this is our partnership and, you know, I can, my goal is to help you get back to what you want to do, but you play a big role in that. I need to know how you're doing and I need you to be honest with us and your parents and coaches that, you know, our, we have a plan and we will work through that and gradually try to, to, you know, pace and progress you back to things. But if something, you know, if we're triggering new symptoms, if this isn't resolving, then we need to reevaluate, you know, where we're at and, and if we're really ready to move on to the next steps. So I have to admit that sounds pretty scary. Um, it, it doesn't sound good. So, and I know that I've had, you know, conversations just with friends who are like, nope, my kids are not playing contact collision sports. Or they don't realize that some of them that we've talked about um, can be, um, you know, there's enough contact in them that concussions can be, you know, an injury that comes out of it. But I'm certain you have conversations with parents all the time. What do you tell them um, if they are concerned with their kids playing, playing these sports? So I tell families that participating in sports, number one, is a very good thing for many reasons. You learn a lot of lessons from being on a team and playing a sport that you cannot get 
from just sitting on the couch and playing video games. In addition, exercising with friends, exercising with a team is a great motivator and a great way to stay healthy. So number one, our job is to tell families and kids that exercise and sports are great. The next thing we tell them is that you play those sports and participate, participate in those sports within the rules. And then you always look at the risks and benefits of the sport that you are playing, whether it's for injury, for time away from family, for um, time away from school. And it's a personal decision and a family decision whether or not a child plays a collision contact sport. Often these conversations will come up in a visit for concussion. And I talk about whether or not to retire from contact sports when a concussion has completely resolved. So a family will come in, injury, say injury happened on Friday night during a football game, Monday morning, should my child stop playing football? Well, hang on. Let's get Mm -hmm. this concussion resolved first. It is reasonable to continue a contact collision sport after a concussion using the things that Paul talked about. So being honest about your symptoms. Uh, There have been rules that have been put in place for different sports to minimize uh, concussion and and concussion risk. Another thing that comes up, which I think that we're going to talk about in a little bit, is helmets. Mm -hmm. And so we get a lot of questions about how do I prevent a concussion? I am never going to be able to make a family feel better about their child getting a concussion in a contact collision sport because there's nothing that we can do and there's nothing that has been proven to prevent a concussion. Mm -hmm. Helmets don't prevent concussions. Helmets prevent skull fractures. And I do not recommend playing football without a helmet. But there's nothing you can do to keep the brain from wobbling around in the skull. Mm -hmm. I get a lot of questions about the collar that we studied in our sports medicine division here um, that the idea is that it makes that fit, that that space within the brain that Paul was talking about a little bit more snug so there's not as much slosh or as much wobble. And while I do believe the device was FDA approved, I'm not sure that we were able to say that it prevents concussion enough to for everyone to recommend it. Do I have that right, Paul? I would agree. Okay. I think it's a another tool, but mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know we still need to see how that uh, bears out as we look at larger populations. Um, I, I take a similar approach. You know, I think it's a risk benefits a discussion with the parents and their family about you know what they're willing to you know accept um, and what some of their goals are. And that's mm-hmm. different for every athlete based on the number of injuries, their other medical factors, where they are in their sports career. And then you know, really, there, there's some practicality to that too. I mean, I see lots of young folks that you know maybe need to rethink what some of their goals are. But that said, you know, I want them to be active. There's so many benefits of good exercise. It's good for, you know, multiple medical conditions and prevention. So our goal is to help find, you know, where's there a better match then? Maybe it's not a contact collision sport. Maybe, you know, it's a different league or a different team. And we've seen more and more, you know, rule changes to try and make certain sports safer in terms of, you know, delaying head balls and 
uh, in soccer, you know, decreasing checking in hockey at the youth levels, you know, the kickoff changes in football. We've seen high school and college football, you know, doing less hitting in practice as ways of trying to decrease that concussion risk. Um, and, and then, you know, but it, it's how long they've taken to recover. It's all that, mm-hmm. you know, taken into one and coming up with the best plan to move forward. And everyone's a little bit different as to what that decision would be. When families ask me about uh, contact football prior to age 14, I will, if they ask, Paul, I will recommend flag football. Do you do the same thing? I do. Uh, You you know, to me, this is a lot, we've labeled it exposure, right? The more off, hitting your head is probably not good for anyone at any age, right? And Mm -hmm. if you're doing that, particularly when you're younger and your brain is still developing, which we know occurs until the early 20s, that, you know, they're more likely to have, you know, problems down the road, the more frequently that happens. Um, So, you know, if you can avoid repetitive head trauma from, you know, at a younger age, you may have more bandwidth to play that sport, you know, as you get older. If you have a lot of exposure at a young age, then you may have problems with some of those sports as you get older as well. So, so ideally, you know, and it's number of games, it's what you do in practice, it's number of seasons of the year, it's which high-risk sports that you're playing. So it's a cumulative effect. Can I ask another question of Paul? Of course, yes, I love it. What about the argument that if kids are not learning how to tackle before they go to high school, they won't, that's bad. And then that will cause more injuries. And then my other one is um, the, I just wanted to make a comment about the size difference. That's where I think like eighth, mm-hmm. ninth grade is really dangerous for kids playing football is the size difference makes a huge difference in impact. So to answer, start to answer your first question, I think technique is incredibly important. Um, you know, this is where coaches and leagues can really help out our athletes in terms of decreasing risk, both in teaching good technique and making sure that these athletes are prepared in general for the sport that they're trying to play. Um, an example that I have is, you know, rugby has been growing in popularity. And when you take a rugby player or, or U.S player who's played football their whole career and you have them play rugby where you know they do a lot of tackling but the technique is very different we see that there's a lot more concussions and head injury just because the American football players don't use the same technique as you know European rugby players in their tackling and so that's just a a quick example of how technique can be really important um And then the other was just a comment about the size difference. The size difference. I I mean, when you look at what a concussion is, I mean, it's caused by an acceleration, deceleration, or rotational force. So going way back to physics, right? Uh, I hate to bring that up, but, you know, there's the standard equation, you know, force equals mass times acceleration. So when you have very big size differences, right, um, you know, you're going to transmit that force to those different athletes differently, which does put, you know, where there's these discrepancies at higher risk, you know, we also note that athletes that you know, when they're blindsided or they can't see the injury coming, they're not able to protect themselves as well. That tends to be a more vulnerable type of situation than if they're able to kind of prepare their body for, you know, that c- collision, but there's collisions with athletes, there's collisions with the ground or equipment or other things too, that can cause that. I want to follow up on your, when you're prepared for the hit comment because that is uh, I think that's a huge difference 
when a kid sees the hit coming versus when they're blindsided, I think those injuries are a little bit worse. And that is why I think uh, that heading a soccer ball does not cause a concussion. And that's some of the evidence that if you have the proper technique, um, if you, uh, you know, there, there's some evidence about neck strengthening, um, not enough to say that that's the magic bullet, but I do recommend that. Um, but if you, if you see a soccer ball, you put it, head it in the right spot. Um, it's not just a hit that is out of the blue or, you know, blindsided that is not going to cause a concussion. It's the kid that gets hit in the head with a soccer ball when they were not expecting it. That's where we see concussions. So to even expand upon the soccer, um, you know, again, if you're using good technique, you know, you're prepared for it. Most of the soccer head injury concussions we see are collisions with another player. Uh, so it has nothing to do necessarily with the ball directly or the athlete kind of falls back and hits their head on the ground. Mm-hmm. So, so almost two-thirds of them are, are not even caused by direct strike from the ball. Uh, so those are pretty rare. But it, and what we found, too, is the rotational forces tend to be less tolerated than the direct you know, f- uh, head-on forces. Um, so if someone is that s- hit to the side of the head, you know, there's more bony prominences in the head, so it causes more shearing and more you know, um, sloshing in the brain potentially, and that's why we think that that causes a more severe injury. Yeah, so I was uh, torn when U.S. soccer came out with the recommendation that there's no head balls under the age of 12 because, le- like your tackling example, um, you know, if you don't learn how to head learn, head the ball, you never learn how to head the ball, and then that's where I think injuries come from. And mm-hmm. so I'm I am torn about that U.S. soccer recommendation, but I, you know I follow it and recommend it to everyone. And um, but just you know definitely make sure that they learn how to head a soccer ball when it's time to head a soccer ball. They don't just start with like balls flying at their head. Well, and I think that's important, like you said, is then how do you bring that education into, you know, the training at the appropriate age where, you know, same thing with hockey and checking, right? Checking usually occurs after age 13, but, you know, then you still need to teach that technique at some point, right? And making sure that it's done appropriately. So the fact that it's delaying, I think is fine, but that doesn't you, know, you, you still need to make sure that people, are, when they get to that point, are doing it correctly. So I do want to go back to uh, the Sorry helmet. Sorry, we get off. No, that's okay. <laughs> it was an incredibly interesting conversation, and I actually have like four follow-up questions. Oh, but yes. I want to make sure that we talk about helmets because kids wear them in several different sports. Um, so just talk to me about, about helmets. Uh, as I said before, a football helmet does not prevent concussion, even if it is called the concussion doctor or whatever. I'm sure there's a crazy name of a, and how are you not going to buy your kid the concussion helmet? Uh, But concussion uh, helmets do not prevent concussion. There's nothing you can do to prevent the brain wobbling around in the skull. Helmets prevent skull fractures, injuries to the outside of the head do not prevent concussion. Soft bands in soccer do not prevent concussion. I tell families, well, it'll give you a target of where to hit the ball, um, but it will not prevent a concussion, especially those instances where Paul was talking about you might hit hit your head on the ground or collide with another player does not lessen the chance of concussion. So I would agree with that, that there's been a lot of work done um, trying to come up with a better helmet. Um, But when you look at, A, the physics around this, 
it's not going to be the end-all, be-all for sure. You know, the NFL, I think, spent, you know, a few years trying to develop better helmets. And, you know, they have new recommendations and look at specific models. And I think some of those are still good ideas and concepts to consider, but that's still not going to be the, the end-all, be-all. So uh, from a concussion standpoint, um, you know, making sure the helmet fits appropriately so it's not wobbling around. And that's what you'll see the NFL now let some of the players pick their own helmets. And it's mostly because of fit um, so mm-hmm. that they can get one that fits the contours of their head and doesn't move around the best. And I think that's a great practice. So making sure your coach or athletic trainer um, can help with that, uh, making sure it's in good working condition. Many of the helmets now have air bladders or other, you know, uh, ways of trying to dissipate that force better. But um, the analogy I tend to use with patients and families, it's, you know, if you've ever had an egg and you shake the egg and you can disrupt the contents inside the egg without breaking the shell, that's really what's happening when you're wearing a helmet in, in sports. So the shell may be okay, but you can still scramble the egg on the inside. So is it okay to wear the helmet that's provided um, in a sport or is there... Um, or should families consider purchasing their own for their kids? I've been getting this question more and more. And, you know, the truth is, you know, there's new kind of like, you know, tests for cars, right? Um, there's new helmet tests that have been out there showing that, you know, these materials perform better than others um, and the more recent, you know, technologies in helmets. And I do think there probably is something good about that, right? You know, can dissipate forces better. Um, so, you know, families have at times gone out and purchased their own helmet. I think it kind of depends on what's being offered. You know, helmets are generally... Um, looked at and should be at least, you know, looked at yearly at a minimum. Um, Some are reconditioned helmets, um, but I think any helmet more than 10 years old um, should not be in service at this point. Um, And if there shows any signs of, you know, damage to the helmet. So it's, you know, there's particular, again, probably more of fit. And there's a whole bunch of models that I think would provide similar protections. but it, each team has their own budget and, and what's available to them. And I think um, that needs to be taken into account as to into that decision-making. You guys have answered all of my questions. Thank you so much for that. Do you have any final thoughts as we wrap up our episode today? I'll say, again, if when your child is playing a sport and you're worried about concussion, when in doubt, sit them out. And then if there are questions about that, primary care physician is always a great place to start. And if there are further questions, we are always happy to see those kids in clinic or answer any questions from primary care physicians, too. And for me, it's for patients and families to if there's if they're in a sport and even if they at the time don't recognize that they had a concussion, if they start having symptoms, headache, nausea, dizziness, trouble concentrating, focusing, um, to think back and did they have a hit or collision or a fall that may have been a trigger for that. And if there's any concern for a concussion that they, they're welcome to seek out medical care either again by their primary care physician or certainly we're happy to see them here at Children's Hospital. Um, our brain injury program, um, so the Brain Health and Wellness Center can be reached at 803-HEAD to make that easy for patients and families. And we see folks of all severities um, within our program. Fantastic. Dr. Burrs, thank you for being here today. Thank you. It was fun. Dr. Gubanich, we appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Happy to. Thank you. You've been listening to Young and Healthy. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. 
This episode was recorded on July 3rd, 2023. The content of the Young and Healthy podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Today's episode was produced by Symphony Fair Harris, and our theme music was created by Stephen Greco. Thanks for listening. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.